Let's pray together, shall we? Father, it's always good to gather. And uh, we just trust that somehow as we've joined our squeaky voices that somehow pleases you that people would gather and acknowledge you as our great holy creator, the giver of life, the author of our salvation, the one who loved us enough to give his only son, the Lord Jesus. Father, we would live out the claims of your word and walk in obedience, and yet we're so aware of the weaknesses of our flesh, the pressures of the world upon us, the temptations of the evil one that trip us. So would you strengthen us now through the preaching of the word? Would you bring conviction to our hearts and our minds? Show us how to apply your word in a very practical and helpful way through the ministry of your Holy Spirit and through the innate power of the word. We dedicate ourselves to be humble, worshipful listeners and then to be active in disciplining ourselves in the application of the word. All for the glory of Christ, all for the light of the gospel to go forward, so that your church is a pure and holy church, and being used by you in this dark world. We thank you for this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you that I'm thinking about a moment in time uh, that really happened. It's actually recorded for us in Luke chapter 22, but you don't have to turn there. Just listen as we lay a groundwork for our topic today. It's, it has to be one of the most horrific moments that anyone could ever live through, and it happened to Peter the Apostle. It happened on the night that our Lord was betrayed, and you do remember in the story that familiar part that that the Lord had looked at Peter in the upper room before they departed, and he had told Peter that three times he was going to reject him before the cock crowed the next morning. Let me just read the account. It's in Luke 22, uh, 47, excuse me, 54. It reads easily. And then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then Luke records in verse 61. Listen to this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. I don't know how far apart they were, but somehow they were positioned that as Peter was at that fireside in the courtyard, and then the rooster crows, and and Peter turns and he looks and he makes eye contact with his Lord. Can you imagine that moment? And you have said it. And the words are out. And 
you cannot bring them back. It's the way it is with words, isn't it? And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Luke adds the conclusion, And Peter went out and wept bitterly. I guess so. You ever have trouble with words like Peter? Do you ever say things that at that moment, it's as though you're looking into the eyes of your Lord Jesus and you think to yourself, why did I say that? If only I could bring those words back. The bottle's on cork, the water's spilled in the dry desert floor, and they are gone and it's over and you can't put them back. Words, speech, our tongues. Do you know that the Bible has a lot to say about our speech? Do you know that Jesus addressed this in no uncertain terms? Our speech is really an interesting thing. Um, There was a book that was published some time ago called The Female Brain. And the author of that book claimed that the average woman spoke 20,000 words per day and that the average man speaks 7,000 words per day. But actually, there was no, uh, no research to back it up. I think we all pretty much would agree with that. But actually, it's not true. Um, so there was a university that went to work and, and uh, they worked hard at some actual research And uh, a more scientific claim has come out, and uh, you could look it up if you wanted to, but um, they concluded that women speak 16,215 words per day, average. But remarkably, statistically, and and much uh, closer than everybody anticipated, the average man says 15,000 669 words a day. And of course, they recognize that there was a variance in people's personality and and opportunities to speak. And one of their studies showed that the the fewest words that they picked up on on an individual was 750 words a day. And the highest was 40,000 words a day. Interestingly enough, both were men. My dad used to think he was funny with a joke that he told. And he would say, do you know why a woman can't grow a mustache and a man goes bald-headed? He said, because hair won't grow where there's activity. (laughs) Can you believe I said that from the pulpit? (laughs) Don't worry, she's not smiling. I will get in trouble later. (laughs) It's, It's just the stuff I hear my dad saying in my head, man. That's not true, you know? And 40,000 words was a man, so... You know, words are interesting, though, aren't they? And uh, our conversation, the way words can be used for good, the way words can come out and, and they can do damage, how words can be used for edifying and building up, and then words can be used to tear down and destroy... How words can be a blessing and then how words can be sinful. I'll tell you what I'd like to do to lay a foundation for our study today is I'd like to kind of wake us up about the reality of words. We all really use a lot of them. Um, And I thought it would be good for us to take just a minute and turn in our Bibles and remind ourselves of a number of words, a number of teaching passages on words. The first is in James chapter 1. And as you turn to James chapter 1, 
Let me just uh, remind you that if you read Proverbs for the day, you know, 31 chapters and 30, 31 days to the month, and you read your Proverbs for the day, you remember that Proverbs speaks to our words a good bit. I remember years ago memorizing a verse from Proverbs in the King James translation, Proverbs 10, 19, Proverbs 10, 19, in the multitude of words, there lacketh not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. Well, that's a good reminder, isn't it? Proverbs has a lot of good instruction about our words. The Apostle Paul and in the epistles, reminds us of the importance of our words, of having speech that is graceful, that is seasoned, that is encouraging, that is for the building up of others. But in broader categories, let me remind you of the power of words. The first in this list is from James chapter 1, and it's in beginning with verse 26. And notice number one, that Words are the test of true spirituality. Words, James says, are the test of true spirituality. In other words, if you claim that you are a spiritual person, you're a godly person, what I have to do to check that out is simply go ask your kids, your neighbors, your husband, what kind of words does that person use? Look what James says. James chapter 1, beginning verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious... And does not bridle his tongue, does not contain his speech, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. James is using the word religion there as a a catchphrase for true spirituality. The next verse is a good reminder. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What James is saying in verse 26, he listen, you can talk, man. You can talk the talk. And don't we talk the talk. We love to talk. We love to trash talk. We love to talk ourselves up, even in the area of spirituality. We were up in Cumberland helping Denny and Tasha, our daughter and son-in-law, and, their, and the kids move um, over to the other side of town. And I was incredibly impressed at watching a little video clip of my son-in-law benching 370 pounds on Friday night at the gym. But I didn't let him know that. I just talked. I talked up. That's nothing. Talk it up, talk, trash talk. And we carried on. Talk, 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 talk. James says you can talk all you want, but if you can't, if you can't produce, you're a fake. But he says the test of true spirituality. You think you're religious. You think you're spiritual, but you don't bridle your tongue. You just have a deceived heart. That's a wake up call, isn't it? We flip the page to chapter three for a further shake up, wake up here. And notice what the second thing we learn about our words and what the Bible says is that our words, not only are they the test of true spirituality, but they are the measure of spiritual maturity. James says in chapter three, verse one, this most familiar passage about our speech and our tongue and our words So not many of you should become teachers, my brother, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The whole point is, the more words you talk, the greater your judgment. That's that Proverbs 10. In the multitude of words, there lacketh not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. It's a warning. 
that your words matter. And if you're a teacher, your words really matter because people are listening. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Did you get that? What James is saying in chapter 3, verse 2, is that words are the actual measure of your spiritual maturity. Notice that he used the word perfect. That if you can bridle or control, and he uses a word picture following this, of putting a, a bit and a bridle on a horse and you can steer it, or using a rudder on a ship and you can steer it, that if you can control your tongue then you can control any other part of your body. You are a mature or perfect man, he says, able to bridle the whole body. The point is this. If you can control words, then you can control your hand and a fork to the chocolate cake and bringing it back to your mouth. So you can control your words, you control your appetite. If you can control your words, you can control your passions. If you can control your words, you can control your temper. Words are the standard of maturity. That's what James says right here. Somebody who can bridle their mouth is a mature, perfect person. Perfect means mature. In the New Testament, it uses that phrase quite a bit for complete or mature or having attained a level. And that's the idea. No one is perfect and free from sin this side of heaven. And the process of sanctification is ongoing. But he says, if you are characterized by being able to control your words, you're a mature, complete, perfect individual. It is the standard of spiritual maturity. Thirdly, I want you to see in James chapter, five, verse, uh, James chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, I want you to see that words can also be the source of tragic calamity. Words are often the source of tragic calamity. Calamity. We could take the microphone now, couldn't we, and go around the room. And we could hear testimonies of deeply embedded, wounding, tragic words that people have experienced in the past. Look what he says, James 3, verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on, in, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Listen, how, how many disastrous... Tragic calamities have people been through because of words. It reminded me of a story that I ran into in a little paperback book that was written by Dr. Joe Stoll for many years. We enjoyed him in his ministry at the Moody Bible Institute. He's now the president of Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And probably 30 years ago, he wrote a little book called, called um, yeah, called um, Tongue in Check. Tongue in Check. In that book, he told a, he quoted a story where an individual says this. The individual is telling the story about themselves. My junior high school had scheduled its 
annual musical production. All the talented, cool students were quick to try out for the various parts. I was not so certain about my abilities and had decided that singing in the musical probably really wasn't for me. And then Mrs. Wilson, my music teacher, asked me to try out for the role of the house servant. It was not a big part in the program and nobody really coveted that role, but it did have three different individual solos. I am certain that my audition was only mediocre, but Mrs. Wilson reacted as if she had just heard a choir of heavenly angels. Oh, that was beautiful. That was perfect. You are just right for the role. You will do it, won't you? And I accepted on the spot. When the time came for the next year's high school musical, most of the students who had played the leads the year before had graduated And Mrs. Wilson had transferred to another school. In her place was a rather imposing figure who had an excellent singing voice and was known for their knowledge of music. As the tryouts began, I was ready. I felt confident that my talent was just what they needed in this year's musical. With approximately 150 of my peers assembled, I knew that I was going to do well. But if I live for an eternity... I will never forget the words spoken on that day. When my audition was completed, the teacher asked in front of everyone, Who ever told you that you could sing? The timid youth of a year before was suddenly, instantly reborn. I was totally destroyed. Harsh words are bad enough under any circumstances, uh, but to a young, idealistic boy... They can be devastating. Words. Words can create tragic calamity. Words are not only, James says, the mark, the true test of spirituality, the measure of spiritual maturity. They are not only the source of tragic calamity, but notice that James then goes on in this passage to warn us about the sin of duplicity with our words. The sin of duplicity. Verse 9, with it, speaking of our tongue, our words, our mouth, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring forth, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What's he talking about? He's talking about that great ability that we have to fit in wherever we are. And to sing and praise the Lord and and to say, bless you, brother. And to carry on with all of the spiritual talk. And then over here to curse and to be harsh and to be angry. How is it that fresh water and salt water can come from the same fountain? James says, no, it cannot. It cannot. And it's a warning about the sin of duplicity. Fifthly, I want you to see that the Apostle Paul uses words to document 
our depravity. He uses words to document our depravity. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing here, and this is Romans chapter 3, so flip back there to Romans chapter 3. What the Apostle Paul is doing in the beginning of Romans, or the book of Romans, is he's writing to the, to the believers there, and he is building a case for the fact that all people everywhere are sinners, no matter what their background is, no matter what their nationality is, no matter who they are, where they were born. You have to understand that the book of Romans is, is like an argument in a courtroom of law. And he's building a case layer upon layer upon layer. And he's in the beginning chapters arguing that all people everywhere are sinners. We often pull out of the first few chapters of Romans that 323 verse, For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And that summarizes the argument of the whole first three or four chapters of Romans. He's building a case that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And that as we identify with the first Adam, he'll talk about that in chapter 4 and chapter 5. As we identify with Adam as a human being, we are condemned in our sinfulness. And so we needed a second Adam, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, to take the place of the first Adam to give us a life and a righteousness that we cannot get on our own. It's a wonderful argument that Paul's using, and he gets technical sometimes. And I want you to notice in chapter 3, beginning with verse 9, he is arguing here to the, to the recipients of the book, which includes us. That no matter what you think, no matter how good you think you are, no matter where you're from... You are a wicked person in your heart. Most of us know that to be true, really, don't we? Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then, the Apostle Paul says, are we Jews any better off? See, you have to understand, parentheses, you have to understand that the audience that he was writing was largely Jewish, and they thought because they were sons of Abraham that, and God's chosen people that that was enough to get them into heaven. And, and everybody else, which is characterized by the word Greeks in this passage, is all other nationalities everywhere. So it includes Italians and whatever, you know, whatever you are. You know, you're not a Jew, so you are a Greek. That's kind of the categories in the passage. Are we Jews any better off because we're Jewish? No, not at all. For we have already charged, Paul says, I've already built this case that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. All people are under sin. As it is written then, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And now look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. What's he doing? The Apostle Paul is pointing out that you can prove the depravity of people by just listening to their words. They prove the darkness of their hearts by the ugliness of their words. Our Lord Jesus spoke similarly in Matthew chapter 15. We're working our way backwards to Matthew. And uh, here we are in Matthew chapter 15. Let's stop there on our way back to chapter 12. 
for our text today. And notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15, verses 17 to 20. We've been, we've stopped in here a few times. This is that passage where I've referenced that you can drink Mountain Dew and eat five guys, according to Jesus. But we won't talk about that today. We'll wait till we get there. But the point at hand is that the Lord Jesus wants to show you that it's what comes out of your mouth in the form of words that proves the darkness of your heart. Look what he says. Verse 17, chapter 15 of Matthew. This is our Lord teaching. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Do you see embedded in that list that the, apost- that the Lord Jesus, and He's already taught the Sermon on the Mount, and He's talked about the fact that the imagination of the heart is so wicked that it can make us guilty of all of these sins. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, and that those behaviors work their way out of a filthy heart. And that part of the evidence that we are depraved and that we are sinful at our base, slander, it's what comes out. Now we're in chapter 12 for the balance of our time and for the text of our message today. It's just chapter 12, verses 33 to 37. And our Lord is teaching, and you'll recall that we're coming out of the passage from a number of weeks ago before Christmas. We're coming out of the passage that has that interesting and puzzling, unpardonable sin. And we have dealt with that, and we're going to reference it a little bit today because I want you to see that Jesus is still talking to that same group of people, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious group of people that were self-righteous, but they were filthy on the inside. Later on, our Lord is going to describe them as being whited sepulchers, graves that are whitewashed on the outside, but full of dead bones on the inside. That's what Pharisees are. I wonder if there's any... Pharisee club people here today. Or on the outside, you got it together and you look good. And on the inside, you're full of dead decay. And the Lord is continuing to build his case with these Pharisees that that you want to tell me how righteous you are. And you want to tell me how of the devil I am. And I'm telling you that all I have to do is listen to your words and witness the fruit of your lives. Let's read our text. It's Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the treasure, out of his good treasure, brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. And I say, whoa. Let's break this passage down. It'll only take us a couple minutes. You'll be able to see it clearly. 
Notice that our Lord begins this rebuttal with the Pharisees who have accused him of being of Beelzebul, the, the devil, Belial, the works of Satan. And Jesus simply points out, if I'm of the devil, how can I do good works? You're not looking at this thing right, Jesus says. And the first thing he begins with, number one, is a parable. Notice the parable in verse 33. It's just a mini parable. Make the tree good and its fruit good, and its fruit will be good. And make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. There's the parable. Now the idea of making a tree good is, it's not really that we're going to control the tree. It it has the idea really of consider or the Lord Jesus saying, I want you to make up a tree in your mind that is good and I want you to make up a tree that is bad. I think that's what his point is. Consider this. Consider one tree to be good and one tree to be bad. The idea of make there is the idea of considering. So make one tree good and make one tree bad. And know this in this little parable. Good trees produce what kind of fruit? Good fruit. And bad trees produce produce bad fruit. You see, Jesus is really defending himself in front of the Pharisees. So you want to look at me and call me of the devil? Just examine my fruit. Examine my words. When I look at you and you think you're so righteous, let's examine your words. Let's examine the fruit from your tree. First thing we see, verse 33, is a parable. The second thing we have is our Lord Jesus with a put down. A put down. Verse 34a, notice what he says. You brood of vipers. Oh, didn't you just love to be there and see our Lord at work? Just getting them. They think they're so good. He says, you know, you go down in a pit where there's a bunch of rocks and you pull back a rock and expose the light. And there a venomous snake has had all dozens of little baby snakes and they scurry out into the light and they're all over and little poisonous snakes. And there's a den of vipers and that's who you are. You're just poisonous and you don't do anybody any good. And if you get a chance, you're just going to poison everybody else and you're going to bring death. And the fruit of your tree is bad fruit and you die. And you're just a brood of vipers and Jesus puts them in their place. The third thing I want you to see is a proverb. It's a proverb, verse 34b. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're getting closer to the point. You ever play that game? Getting warmer, getting warmer. We're getting warmer to understanding what Jesus is talking about here. Listen, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's the proverb. Aesop in his fables had a story. And it goes like this. Aesop, the ancient, ancient storyteller, told this fable. Once upon a time, a donkey found a lion's skin. He tried it on, strutted around, and frightened many animals. Soon a fox came along, and the donkey tried to scare him too. But the fox, hearing the donkey's voice, said, If you want to terrify me, you'll have to disguise your bray. The fox was smart enough to listen to the voice. You can look like whatever you want to on the outside, but your voice is going to give you away. You can call yourself any kind of tree you want, but the fruit is going to give you away. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's what's on the inside that's coming out. That's the proverb. Here's the principle or the point of the passage. Verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. You have to understand verse 35 to understand verse 36. Why does Jesus care about our words? 
Why is Jesus in the face of these Pharisees calling them a brood of vipers? That doesn't seem loving to me. Well, I'll tell you, it is loving if it's the only way you can help them understand the truth. And the best thing they could have done is fallen on their face and repented of their sin the way John the Baptist called them to when back in chapter 3, John the Baptist called the same group of people, you brood of vipers. Nothing but poisonous snakes. Because the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. But where do we, and how do we become a good person? You pull yourself up by your bootstraps? You just make up your mind and hold your breath and discipline yourself and become a good person? But the bad person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil And so the principle of the tree and the fruit, the principle here of what's on the inside ends up on the outside. That's the principle. What's on the inside ends up on the outside leads us to our final point here. Number five is verse 36. And it's a problem. It's a problem. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. This is a problem. First of all, it's a problem at a personal level. Because I say a lot of words. And a lot of words I shouldn't say. Unkind words, harsh words, put down humor words. Words that are careless The idea of careless words is an empty word, a word that is not helpful. That's a problem. And you're telling me that Jesus is saying that on the day of judgment, what they're going to do is they're going to unfold this this scroll or something and every word, you know, my 40,000 word days and my 750 word days and every word, however, a billion many words I'm going to speak in my lifetime. And we're just going to look at the words, look at the words, look at the words. This is a wicked person. Unscroll your words. Oh, that's a righteous person. Huh. So the personal problem leads to a theological problem, doesn't it? I thought, Pastor Van, that you don't get saved by any kind of works. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. And what Jesus is teaching here, that if I go from here and I just speak good words from now on, I'll be saved. And you know what I would say to that? You're exactly right. If you can leave here from now on in the rest of your life and never say another bad word, you will be a perfect person and you will get into heaven. But I'm warning you, you won't make it through the day. You won't make it probably the next 90 minutes. So we have a real problem. So what is Jesus talking about? And so the problem points us back to the principle. And Jesus reminds us in the principle that it's what's on the inside that tells the truth about who we are. And if we're unrighteous on the inside, you will be able to determine that by their words. And so on the day of judgment... You will be convicted and condemned by the reliable evidence of the words that come out of your mouth. The forensic, hard evidence of proof before all people on the day of judgment as they wail and as they tell the Lord they're a good person is to simply uncork the bottle of all their words and shake it out and show them their unrighteousness by their mouths. It's a powerful reality. And so the only solution 
to solve the problem both personally and theologically is to change my heart. Because if I have a righteous heart, then when you uncork the bottle of my words and shake them out, the evidence is going to show that out of a righteous heart comes righteous speech. There it is. This is not salvation by works. This is simply Jesus pointing to the Pharisees that if you want evidence of your dirty, rotten hearts, all I have to do is listen to your words. And in fact, on the day of judgment, we'll show you your words and we'll prove to you that you're not righteous. So let me ask you a question. Did Jesus ever swear at anybody? Do you think Jesus working in his carpenter shop ever hit his thumb with a hammer and swore, lost his temper and said bad things about his neighbor? Do you think Jesus ever told a dirty joke? Do you think Jesus ever said a cross, harsh word to his mother? Do you think Jesus ever belittled and put down his brothers and sisters? Who's the one person that never said a bad word ever? Who? The right answer is Jesus, class. That's the right answer. Jesus. And let me tell you, is that the best answer? And so that's why we sang at the beginning of this service about His grace that is broader than the scope of my transgression. Because uncork all the filthy words that have ever spewed out of my filthy heart and His grace goes broader than that. And that's why we're teaching you a new song that's loaded with soteriology, the doctrine of our salvation, where it starts out four times in a row on every stanza, His robes for mine. You see, when you go to the cross and you pour out all your filth, Jesus takes it as though it was His, and then He gives you His righteousness, and then you can stand on the day of judgment as though you've never said a bad word because you have a liaison. You have an intermediary. You have a representative. You have someone who took all of your bankrupt corruptness and gave you complete good credit, and all you have to do is whip out the Jesus card, and your credit is fine, and every word you've ever said is good in the eyes of God because of being justified. That's like a mystery. See, you cannot muster up enough good words to impress God and show Him that you're a good tree because you got a good heart. Because you don't, you have a filthy heart. And in fact, your heart is desperately wicked, Jeremiah says, and deceitful. And so we go to Jesus and we lay down in humility our sinful past and we ask Him to give us a new heart. It bothers some people when little kids ask Jesus into their heart. And this has probably got some theological issues a little bit. But that's a pretty good place for Jesus to clean up, right? According to this passage. Jesus, will you come to my heart and will you scrub it? Jesus, will you take everything that is filthy in my tree heart and will you make it new and good and clean so that I am a righteous heart that bears righteous fruit so that on the day of judgment, if you look at my words, you'll see that there's nothing but righteousness there. Uh, let me remind you, we're not perfect. And 1 John 1, 9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the point is, a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. What kind of tree are you? 
Question number one. Has it ever really occurred to you that your words were so significant? Question number two. If someone were to follow you around all day recording your words, would they conclude by the end of the day that you are in Christ? Question number three. Do you need the Holy Spirit of God today to scrub up your words? It's only done by scrubbing up your heart. That's the well pit of words. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. And we thank you that you are a loving and kind Heavenly Father. And we thank you that your perfect justice and your perfect holiness is offset by your generous love and kindness. And that your justice is in balance with your mercy and your grace. And we thank you that you are a rescuing God. And that you came to a whole forest full of bad trees bearing bad fruit. And you gave us the solution to cure the disease so we could become good trees and bear good fruit. And that that great activity was all done at the cross in Christ where we could have your righteousness to renew our hearts. Father, would you convict those of us who are believers in Christ who have been undisciplined and grieved the Spirit of God and and used words that are not peaceful and encouraging and kind and godly, would you just overwhelm us with conviction about these things? And then, Lord, would you help us to listen to ourselves this week? And if there's some words coming out that prove the, the tree is bad because the fruit is bad, that you would drive people to their knees to Christ to receive his forgiveness once and for all. Help us to walk in the truth, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.